0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter six, verses 48 through 59. Starting with John chapter six, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Please be seated. At GCF, we believe the best way to feed the sheep is through the consecutive exposition of the scriptures. We've been in the Gospel of John for a while. Last week was a hard text, and this week is a hard text, but they just so happen to come next. Next. So let's pray once again uh, and ask for God's help as we consider the words of Jesus in John 6. Father, we do admit that we need your help this morning. We pray that you would pour out your spirit liberally now, uh, fill us all with understanding. Lord, amaze us and overwhelm us by your grace and help us to apply uh, the truths of this sacred passage. guard my lips very carefully and we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Incorporated in California in 1972, Alcor is the world's leading provider of cryonics services. With 50 preserved patients and 1,400 people on the waiting list, they seek to provide an extension to life and a stabilization of the dying process using sub-freezing temperatures. According to their website, People who would have been declared dead decades ago may still have a chance today. Death, they say, used to be when a person's heart stopped beating. But now, life can be extended further. According to the website, $140,000 for cryonic services is a pretty good deal. And if the full package is beyond your budget, there is a half price option, which involves freezing just your head With the hope that decades from now, it'll be reattached to someone else's body. Within hours of dying, you'll be packed with ice as giant syringes pump liquid oxygen and nitrogen into your body to prevent deterioration. Then you'll be taken to their facility and cooled down to 320 degrees, minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit, in the hope that someday the technology will be available to bring you back to a new, resurrected life. Now, cryonics may sound crazy to most of us, but it's hard to criticize anyone who wants to live forever. Death is one of the things that most people fear the most. Death represents the end of everything, the end of our accomplishments, our wealth, our hopes, our dreams, everything dies with death. Every day around the world, three people die every second, 180 die every minute, 11,000 die every hour, and 260,000 people die every day around the world, which implies that someday you will die, which raises the question, are you ready to die? Are you terrified of dying? What if I could say to you this morning, there is a way to live forever. Would you be interested in that particular subject? That brings us to the words of Jesus in this passage. In this passage, Jesus makes an astonishing claim. He says this, whoever is willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, that person will live forever. So all you have to do to live forever is eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood. What in the world does that mean? Well, to help us understand this perplexing passage, we're going to look at four headings, the pronouncement, The confusion, the meaning, and the application of Christ's words. First is the pronouncement. Jesus makes a startling, audacious pronouncement. He says, again, to live forever, all we have to do is feast on his flesh and blood. Hopefully, you noticed in verses 49 to 58, how many times Jesus mentions the topic of life, death, or not dying. He mentions that topic or subject nine times in these verses. John 6, 49 to 50, Jesus says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. How about verse 51? Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Finally, verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the Father's ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus is very, very clear. He says nine times, That if you want to live, if you want to avoid death, if you want to experience eternal life, all you have to do is feast on His flesh and blood. Now, eternal life refers to two things, as I mentioned many times in the John series. It refers to duration. Eternal life lasts forever, which means that trillions of years from now, if you're a Christian, You will be with the Savior on this planet, recreated, dwelling in a glorified resurrection body without any of the effects of sin, no pain, no suffering, no sadness, no cancer, no disease, no politics, just you and millions of saints and angels and the triune God. But eternal life also refers not just to duration, but quality of life. Eternal life is rooted in relationship with God. Eternal life is so sweet because eternal life uh, is rooted in knowing the triune God. And Psalm 1611 says that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. How many of you want fullness of joy this morning? Not just a little joy, but fullness of joy. That's eternal life, fullness of joy. And here's Christ's point. If you want to experience that forever, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, did you notice the exclusive nature of Christ's claim? Look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, which means I'm dead serious about the truth. Or it means I swear I'm not lying to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, conditional clause, unless, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life into you. This is a very bold pronouncement. Christ is saying the only way to eternal life is drinking his flesh and eating his blood. That's it. No other ways. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you do this thing, you will not live forever. Which means that Muhammad cannot give eternal life. Nor can the Buddha. Nor can Judaism. Or Shintoism. Or Mormonism. Or religion. Or being a really, really good person. The only way to eternal life is to feast on Christ's flesh and Christ's blood. Now, as you can imagine, Christ's bold pronouncement about eating his flesh and drinking his blood caused lots of confusion, which brings us to the second point. So first, the the pronouncement, and second is the confusion. The Jews were very confused about Christ's bold pronouncement. Look at verse 52 with me. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, just imagine being in the audience with the Jews and hearing some guy say to you all, If you want to live forever, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You too would have been confused. (laughs) And you would have thought, That's repugnant. Cannibalism is disgusting and morally wrong. So, the Jews were confused. And throughout church history, these words have confused many. For instance, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that these words in John 6 are a direct reference to the Lord's Supper or communion. And they think that what happens is when the The priest, when the priest holds up the elements of bread and wine and prays over them with a Latin phrase, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body in Latin, that those elements mysteriously or magically turn into the actual body and blood of Christ. By the way, did you, did you hear that? Hoc est corpus meum, hocus pocus? That's where that phrase comes from. The priest would magically transform the elements into the actual body and blood of Christ, so, Roman Catholics teach that in the Mass, in the Lord's Supper, we're actually eating somehow the real body and blood of Jesus. Now, Protestants think Catholics are wrong for at least two reasons. First of all, these words of Christ were, were spoken a year before the Lord's Supper. So, communion would have been in no one's mind. And number two, Christ is saying that to experience eternal life, you have to eat His flesh and drink His blood, which, according to the Catholics, uh, that means that we have to do stuff to be saved. And in other parts of the gospel, Jesus makes it very, very clear that we are not saved by doing things. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. So this is not a direct reference to communion. Now, with that said... Most Protestant scholars agree, although this is not a direct reference to communion, Uh, this does illuminate our practice of communion. The bread and wine remain bread and wine, but nonetheless, uh, these verses do instruct us on the practice of communion. D.A. Carson, a famous Protestant scholar, says this, in short, John 6 does not directly speak of the Eucharist or communion yet it does expose the true meaning of the Lord's Supper as clearly as any passage in Scripture. How? How does John 6 shed light on communion? That brings us to the third point. First, the pronouncement. Second, the confusion. And then third is the meaning. What in the world did Jesus mean when he said... You can only experience eternal life if you eat my flesh and drink my blood. What did he mean by those cryptic words? Again, look, look with me at John six fifty three to 55. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Jesus often spoke in highly symbolic and metaphorical language. For instance, uh, in John, he says, I am the light of the world or I am the gate, or I am the true vine. He was not literally claiming to be a light, a gate, or a vine. He would often use language in a very metaphorical or symbolic way. Well, then what is he saying? When you and I come across a difficult text of Scripture, the best way to understand it is by employing or utilizing what is called the analogy of faith, which simply says this. Scripture is its own best interpreter. The best commentary on Scripture is the Scripture. So, what do other verses tell us about what's happening here in these cryptic words? John six thirty-five sheds a lot of light on John six fifty-three to fifty-five. In John six thirty-five, Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me." Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Our hunger and our thirst are satisfied in Christ through faith alone. In this verse, Jesus is proclaiming that feeding on him as the bread of life entails coming to him through faith or by believing in him. Furthermore, John 6, uh, 53 55. Uh, we learn that we must feast on Christ's flesh and blood to have eternal life. But then John 6.40 tells us that we must believe in Christ to have eternal life. Listen to the words of John 6.40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There are not two options for obtaining eternal life. Option one, we eat Christ's flesh and Christ's blood. Option two, we believe. Both texts are referring to the same thing. In both texts, Jesus is saying, if you want to live forever, you must believe in me. So, Christ is using this metaphor of eating and drinking His flesh and blood to illustrate the nature and the essence of saving faith, which raises another important question. What specifically are we believing about Christ? What are we putting our faith in? Well, verse 51 makes that very clear to us. Verse 51, Jesus says, "'I am the living bread that came down from heaven.'" If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. When Jesus says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, he is using the language of substitution. He's saying that he will give up his body for the life or salvation of the world, one of the most famous theologians in the 20th century was named Karl Barth. B-A-R-T-H, pronounced Bart. Not always a good guy to follow, but he was asked the question: "What is the most important word in the Bible?" He didn't say Jesus or God or cross or propitiation. He said. The most important word in the Bible is the word hyper. Greek word for for. For is the most important word in the Bible. Jesus died for our sins. That word for is the language of substitution. Which implies that all of us deserve to die on the cross. But God the Father, motivated by extravagant love, sent His Son to die for us. Which means He died in our place. Even though He was innocent, perfect, stainless, He decided to take upon Himself the guilt that all our sins deserve and suffer and die for us. The word for is the key to the Christian religion. Jesus died for us. We are putting our faith and our confidence in the fact that someone else died in our place. Back to our controversial words of verse 53 to 55. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus uses the language of eating and drinking to illustrate the nature of saving faith. He's saying, if you want to experience eternal life, you must place all your hope and confidence in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. I love how J.C. Ryle says this. He was an Anglican evangelical in uh, Liverpool in the 19th century. He says this about this, this text. Whenever a person, feeling his own guilt and sinfulness, lays hold on Christ and trusts in the atonement made for him by Christ's death at once, He eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood, which raises a question. Why in the world did Christ choose this metaphor to describe saving faith, eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Why? Well, that question brings us to the fourth and final point. First, the pronouncement, then the confusion, then the meaning. Now, fourth is the application. Again, why does Christ use this cryptic language of feasting on him to explain faith? There are several reasons. For instance, faith in Christ, like eating food, is necessary. In June 1965, a 27-year-old Scottish man weighing 456 pounds decided to stop eating until he reached his desired weight of 180 pounds. Angus Barbieri ate nothing whatsoever for 382 days and achieved his goal and lived to tell the tale. His approach was potentially life-threatening, which is why the superhuman feat was achieved under strict medical supervision. Before embarking on his fast, Angus checked into the Merrifield Hospital in Dundee, Scotland, returning regularly for evaluation and occasionally staying overnight. Thus, for well over a year, this guy lived on nothing but tea, coffee, and water. He was given appropriate vitamins and electrolyte supplements to keep him going. When this extraordinary undertaking came to an end on July 11, 1966, Angus had lost a total of 276 pounds. In 1971, he entered the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest recorded fast. Now, this story is amazing because most of us would die after not eating for 382 days. Why? Food is utterly and absolutely necessary for our survival. Without food, we will die, period. It just takes a matter of time. In a similar sense, faith in Jesus Christ is utterly and absolutely necessary for eternal life. There is no other way to experience eternal life, but through faith in Christ alone, which raises the obvious question, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you freely admitted that your sins separate you from a holy God? And have you Fully cast yourself on Christ's mercy and said, Jesus, I need you to forgive me of all my sins. If you have not done that, you will not experience eternal life. But if you have done that, you will. Faith in Christ, like eating food, is necessary for eternal life. And by the way, real faith, saving faith, is more than just agreeing to facts about Jesus. Faith in Christ, like eating food, is necessary. In addition, faith in Christ, like eating food, requires action. Look at verse 53 to 55 with me again. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood and has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. When was the last time you were really hungry? And I mean really hungry. When I was a sophomore in college, I embarked on my first fast. It was only a day. Uh, I was involved in a ministry at WSU called Campus Crusade for Christ, and the Campus director encouraged all of us to fast for a day with him to help us be more effective at reaching the campus with the gospel. And so a team of us, the student leaders, all agreed to fast. And none of us were very good at fasting. It was a a simple 24-hour fast. So we had dinner and then we went to bed. That was the easy part. Um, Woke up the next day. Skipping breakfast was kind of hard, but not too challenging. Skipping lunch was a little harder. Early afternoon, All of us were cranky and irritable and shaky and weak. And then by late afternoon, we were really experiencing the effects of hunger. Now part of our retreat was we drove to Spokane to break our fast at the old spaghetti factory, which was a holy and righteous idea. So. When we're driving to the spaghetti factory, all we can think about and talk about is food. We finally get there. We look at the menu. And at this point, thinking about food did not help our bodies. Reading the menu did not help our bodies. Smelling the sausage and the meat sauce and the mazithra cheese did not help our bodies. Chewing the food did not help our bodies. Your body would only be helped if you grabbed your fork, reached out, grabbed some azithra cheese, some pasta, make sure you get some sausage on that fork as well, put it in your mouth, chew it, and then you have to swallow. And at that point, when you actually swallow the food, your body is nourished and strengthened. In a similar sense, you can know all the facts about Jesus. You can be in a family that honors and respects Jesus. You can go to a private Christian school. You can read the Bible many times. You can come to church. But you're not going to be saved until you personally make a decision to feast on Jesus. Your action is required. You have to reach out with the hands of faith, grab hold of him, put him in your mouth, and chew and swallow by faith. Your parents cannot eat for you. Your pastor can't eat for you. It's not enough just to know about the menu. You have to personally make a decision to trust Jesus. And I want to plead with all the youth here this morning. You are not going to become a Christian just because your parents are Christians. You have to personally make a decision to repent of sin and trust Jesus. And if you don't, you will not experience eternal life for all eternity. You'll experience the opposite. So don't presume just because you go to church, have Christian parents, go to Christian school, that you're okay. You're not until you personally feast on Jesus by faith. And by the way, here's the best part. This meal is totally and utterly free of charge. There is nothing you can do to earn the merits of Christ. You believe. That's it. And you're forgiven, cleansed, adopted, and made a member of God's family. Have you personally tasted the goodness of Christ? Faith in Christ, like eating food, is necessary. Faith in Christ, like eating food, requires action. In addition, faith in Christ, like eating food, is strengthening. Verse 56, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. When we eat food, physical food, the food somehow becomes part of our bodies. When you eat mazithra cheese and meatballs and broccoli and lasagna and pizza, probably not Diet Mountain Dew, those those other things, eventually they become skin and hair and muscles and tendons. So somehow, mysteriously, your body is united to that food. In a similar sense, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're united to him. Now we, we, we remain separate entities, but we are united together, which is why Jesus uses the language in verse 56. He says, uh, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is referred to as the mystical union or the vital union, and all Christians by faith are united to Christ inseparably, though they remain distinct entities. As a result of that union, we have strength to live lives that are pleasing to God. Again, back to verse 56 and verse 57. Over feeds on my flesh, and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now, this last reference to live is probably a reference to living everyday life, not eternal life, which he mentioned earlier in the passage. Christ is saying simply this. When you and I put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we united to him inseparably. He lives in us. We are in him. And that is how you and I have strength to live the Christian life. But here's the problem. Even though every Christian is objectively unified with Christ, a lot of Christians don't live out of that union. They forget they're united to Christ by faith. They don't believe that, wonderful, glorious doctrine. And so they start to live the Christian life on their own strength, not realizing or remembering that they are united to the Maker of the universe, who is all-powerful. So by faith, we must believe every day that we are united to Christ. And because of that union. We have Christ's power at our disposal to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Which raises the question where do you need strength this week to honor God? Maybe it's strength to forgive, strength to admit you're wrong, which requires lots of strength, strength to serve, strength to take up your cross. Strength to give. Our union with Christ provides us with everything we need to live lives that are pleasing to God. And we appropriate that strength through faith. It turns out that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he used the metaphor of eating and drinking to describe faith. It's a great metaphor. Many people... Are terrified of dying. This fear causes companies like Alcor to push the limits of cryonics. One of Alcor's competitors writes this, the intention in cryonics is to provide a sort of ambulance into the future. Chances are reasonable that the technology required to repair your body will be available. Cryonics aims to get you there. But no matter how far science advances, Everyone will still die unless Christ returns first. Chronics will not solve any of your death problems. But there is hope beyond the grave. It is possible for you and I to live forever, and it costs us nothing. All we have to do is feast on the body and blood of Christ through faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have promised to give us eternal life. Father, we thank you that eternal life is free of charge. It costs you everything, but it costs us nothing. Lord, help us this week to believe the gospel again and again and again and again. Lord, help us to realize that faith in Christ is more necessary than even physical food. Lord, help us to rely by faith on our union with Christ for strength to live lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, may this church be marked by a robust faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. Let's pause for a moment of silent reflection, and I want you to ask the question, how does God want me to respond to the truths of John 6 this morning? So let's bow our heads in silence and pray and ask God to guide us.